Hey team, Oliver here. We have got a few changes happening to this podcast. I have recently taken on a new role at Blackbird Ventures, the largest venture capital firm in Australasia, and as a result, I have been finding myself slightly pressed with getting time to do this podcast. Uh, I love what we have been building here at Micromobility Industries and the, with the Micromobility community, and I and I want to keep serving up news. So. I have decided to turn to people that I really admire to help out and help fill in this content gap. James Gross, who is the co-founder of Micromobility Industries, who I've had on the podcast before, and Julia Thane, who's at the Rocky Mountain Institute and who I have also had on the show before, have been doing an excellent show on YouTube called Ride On that covers weekly news in micromobility, does giveaways, and then interview folks who are building micromobility companies, albeit in shorter snippets than this sort of longer form episode format that I do here. Every so often, I have asked them to intersplice some of their episodes in with us. This week, we will be putting up the latest episode of Ride On. This one is in particular covering the topical bankruptcy of Van Moof, which I'm very, very sad about and it's very unfortunate as we will hear. Discussion of autonomous cars in San Francisco and a short interview with Eli Electric. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, I hope that you enjoy. And with that, here is James and Julia. Well, Julia, do we decide whether or not the Vela 2 is coming with a uh, jar? Oh, it's coming with some honey. It's Please. coming with some Brooklyn honey. Yeah, that's okay. for sure. Welcome to Ride On, episode 22. I'm James Gross, and I'm joined by my co-host, Julia Thane. Julia, it's Friday not Thursday like our normal filming day, so we're getting close to the weekend. Um, what have you been up to this week? James, I've had a huge week. I was actually in Colorado for work this week. Um, and I have to say, I think the Boulder, Fort Collins, Denver Triangle are absolutely giving SoCal a run for its money in terms of uh, both number of and diversity of e-bikes, e-cargo bikes. Um, I was a bit like a kid in a candy shop or that uh, Angelino in a juice shop i don't know if that works but we'll go I'll go with that um <laughs> just <laughs> james is like don't do that again um <laughs> looking at all of the the different e-bikes and e-cargo bike brands that i saw on the street and just snapping pictures of them so i'm sure everybody was convinced that i was going to be stealing some of these e-bikes but really what i was trying to do is just scope out which brands um we've covered or haven't covered um in our uh micro mobility landscape uh and also just see who else we should be inviting on the show yes I love that. Um, any, did you ride at all in Colorado? I did. Okay. Yeah. So three things. I rode in Boulder and I rode their electric bike, bike share, which cost me $7 for a single trip. I was like offended by how much that was. And it was like 30 minutes, $7. I, maybe I'm just like, uh, not really, um, uh, giving you know cities enough credit for being able to charge what it actually costs to do a a, a bike ride, but anyway, seven dollars for a single bike ride was like a, a lot for me. Um, and then James, uh, some of the other things I saw uh, when I was in Fort Collins actually, um, Spin is still operating there, so I hadn't expected to see some of the shared uh, bikes from Spin out in the wilds, but uh, they were there in Fort Collins. Okay, and then what about on the on the just the, the own side? Were you seeing more like mountain bike? I, I picture Colorado. I picture a lot of like e mountain bikes, and it's kind of the home of so many of these e mountain bike brands. Like, yeah. was it more that, or did you see a lot of road and more cargo commuting bikes? Total, total mix, total mix. Bunch of Aventons. The brand that I didn't recognize was a brand called Rambo. 
Have you heard Those of really? them? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. Yeah. So Rambo. Yeah. And then it was just a complete mix, but a lot of a lot of e-bikes, not as many acoustic bikes as we're calling them, or normal or normal pedal bikes. Um, and so just very, very interesting, again, to get out of the state and to see a, a different set of um, products that are being consumed uh, in Colorado. Yeah, shout out to Colorado. That's, uh, that's really cool. Um, okay, well, we're glad to have you back uh, in California and uh, riding your local brands, hopefully here at some point, maybe this weekend. Uh, all right, Julia, let's get on to some announcements. So uh, we have to give away the electric XB light again from our fr- our friends at Electrid. Uh, Do you see any electrics in Colorado by chance? Mm-hmm. No, that's close. That's a sister state with uh, Arizona with, with 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 their hometown. Surprised you wouldn't see the Surprising. four corner area. Um, okay, that's okay. But um, I do want to announce the winner of the electric XB light. And that is uh, Cole Clark. So CC there, Cole Clark. You are the winner of the Electric XP Light. Thank you for um, submitting your information and uh, engaging with with our content on YouTube or wherever you're able to engage with it. Uh, we also still have the uh, the Julia favorite Vela Two uh, still giveaway still going on. Um, the the interview we did last week with Justin, the CEO of Vela, was really great and. Um, but Julia, do we decide whether or not the Vela 2 is coming with a uh, jar? Oh, it's coming with some honey. It's Please. coming with some Brooklyn honey. Yeah, that's okay. for sure. <laughs> so head over to riderview.com, enter your information to win the Vela 2, and hopefully get some Brooklyn honey along with that. That would be super, super sweet. Uh, and then the final <laughs> announcement for today, Julia, is uh, we've got a lot of comments and a lot of uh, written suggestions about uh, moving the, the uh, ride on also to audio people that want to follow along, I guess, if they're driving or they just can't watch it on video. Um, and so hopefully very soon here, we will be doing Ride On as a podcast and we'll do our best to actually combine this with our, our sister podcast, the Micro Mobility Podcast from Oliver Bruce, so that you can go to one place and watch, sorry, not watch, listen to all of our shows. Uh, and so if you want to start, you can head over to what, whatever your favorite uh, podcast player of choice is, if that's Apple or Spotify or YouTube podcasts uh, and just subscribe to us there. Um, and very soon our ride on as well as of course the Microbility podcast um, will be will be there for you in the audio format. So yeah, thanks for thanks for sending in some submissions uh, on that and uh, we'd, we'd be happy to serve you. So yeah, we'll get, you get Julia and James in um, just an audio format as well, which maybe is, uh, maybe is better. <laughs> Are you going to say James that's an improvement? How dare yeah, you? Was, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not for both. Is that me? Yeah. Thanks, James. Yeah. We will see. Uh, Julia, let's let's send it over to you. Let's get to the news. We got a lot to cover. James, um, man, this has been a really big news week, and uh, I don't know if we want to call it spicy or meaty or just we're going to get into the tea because a lot of things have happened this week and honestly some of the news stories are still developing so even as we publish this episode probably we won't have the most up-to-date news um the first story i'm gonna have to say with straight face because it is actually a very serious story uh but a less serious title and that is van moof goes poof so what happened is that the cult e-bike brand van moof um has paused sales and uh, TechCrunch is reporting that some of its top execs are either departing or have departed or are taking non-CEO, so just you know, co-founder roles and titles. Uh, the company hasn't yet shared an official statement on what's happened, 
but our sources are saying that they're trying to secure a bridge round uh, in order to keep the business afloat. And honestly, again, as I mentioned, this story has uh, evolved over the past several days. So every day it seems like new information is coming out, uh, deepening the story, starting to unravel the mystery. Um, James, I have some thoughts about uh, why this might have happened, but I'm curious, when you hear that news about uh, Van Moof and pausing sales and some of its top execs and bridge uh, round funding, what do you think? Like, why why might this be happening? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's a lot of things that we've talked about in the past, Julia, as it relates to the market changing. Um, this has impacted a lot of uh, technology companies, especially technology companies that had taken on venture capital as venture capital dollars seem to have tried up. Um, and so this is, I believe, you know, and we know, we know these folks really well, we know Taco really well. So this is a really sad story to have to report on. Um, and, you know, we have a lot of information, I think, uh, about what's happening. I will give a shout out to uh, Ryan Johnson from this, the founder of Cul-de-Sac, who I think did a really good job of breaking down some of the issues with Move over time. Um, on Twitter, and we can we can link to that, um, and then a lot of it's just documented in Reddit, Reddit and other places as to the the true like uh, maybe more more core breakdowns in the company. I will say the two things that maybe I I I saw that maybe others didn't, which is um, you know why, why I try to share it. One is I was very um, surprised by the culture of um, some of the city officials in Amsterdam this year and going to. Um, Going, going out there, of course, and participating in, in our event, where I heard more than once that the city didn't want to be um, like associated with Van Loof. Um, and you know, like they they weren't very happy with some of their practices. And I took that as a, I took that as a really harsh statement. Um, and I just got the sense that um, the city and the culture was not rooting for them. And I thought, wow, like it's hard enough to build a company like what they're trying to do and displace cars and mode shift and everything. It's just interesting that the hometown wasn't really behind them. And this is a little, uh, I, I've also heard, I think we're going to talk about Cowboy too. I've seen Tange from Cowboy talk about this in Belgium and how he, he hasn't always felt the support of the Belgian press and the Belgian community in terms of helping that, that company out as well. So I think there's a theme here I just want to watch, which is um, in this case, I think European entrepreneurs not feeling like they're getting the support they need to make their company successful. Um, only in that they're both European companies, so I'm I'm sort of making that uh, <laughs> making that leap a little bit. Um, but I, Brussels, no, I Amsterdam, yeah, two different I places. Wouldn't, I wouldn't feel like I've I've seen that a lot with American companies. Like, oh, you know, I, hmm. we didn't make it because the culture didn't really help us. I feel like we it's slightly different here in that regard. So that's just one thing that I I didn't see reported on. I haven't seen as one of the reasons that I thought was interesting. Like, wow, did they not? Was this like what? was what they were doing so different that people didn't want to support them. Because I don't think they were doing anything illegal or anything wrong. I think they were trying to do something very hard and um, you know something that was in many ways maybe destined to fail. So in that case, you'd want as much support as possible. So that's just one thing I wanted to throw out there that, um, again, hasn't been reported on from what I've seen. Yeah, very interesting. And not something, honestly, that I thought a lot about. Um in terms of just needing the city support, needing the you know country support for the companies themselves. Um, I think that is important, but in my mind, this speaks to maybe some other issues, some of which were reported on, some of which weren't. Um, one thing I do also want to acknowledge is that Van Move kind of set a precedent. I mean, they're not a new company, right? Like this is a six, 10, whatever year old company. And when they first launched, I mean, they were that like Apple iPhone product for e-bikes. We went from something that seemed pretty clunky to something that was so much more streamlined. 
And they were able to do it through uh, some things that I also think kind of led to, partially led to the downfall, um, one of which is the vertical integration components. So Van Move owns its you know whole sort of value chain supply chain. That has to be expensive. Um, I, I'm sure there's some components that are cheaper than others, uh, but their margins for the e-bikes themselves have been very low. And at some point, um, actually were no margins at all. Because again, one thing that was reported on is that the cost of repair and maintenance and replacement um, uh, was just astronomical because um, in some cases or uh, you know, overall, one in 10 bikes uh, that were purchased were actually replaced. So they had some issues with the software, some issues with the hardware, um, and just generally you know, um, didn't have necessarily the longevity of the bikes that they needed to in order to, to really um, maintain those margins. Um, the other thing, James, that's interesting here is um, Van Moof, you know, had kind of set like that precedent as well about software integration and about, um, you know, having very few things that you could do manually on the bike and then most things that you'd have to do through through an app. Um, so that has actually become a challenge uh, now that uh, it looks like uh, Van Moof is not just pausing sales, but potentially might actually be pausing um, any payments that it makes. Uh, uh, resulting in uh, if folks aren't able to get the keys off of their bikes, uh, then they're actually not going to be able to unlock the bikes. So we would just see a bunch of stranded assets, a bunch of uh, Van Moofs that, like, that can't be ridden. Um, so, you know, I, I guess fun intended here, uh, Competitor Cowboy has ridden to the rescue um, and created an app that uh, uh, unlocks the bikes if Van Moofs can no longer pay their cloud bills. Um, and as I mentioned, the, the bikes relied on these apps for controls. You know, if they can't pay their bills, the bikes lock. It's a bad look for the whole industry, or at least that's what um, Tongi and the others at Cowboy are saying. Um, I will say just one thing about this app. Uh, it is called Bikey, so that might be its only downfall is uh, somewhat of a, <laughs> a, um, a, an interesting name for the, for the app itself. But here I do think what you're uh, seeing is that, you know, competitors are actually collaborators in the micromobility space. Like it doesn't make sense to even allow one company to fail um, because then it looks bad for the whole industry. So um, James, I, I wonder what you what you think about that too, just in terms of um, the competitor versus collaborator. And then also just like what this means for how comfortable consumers are going to be in purchasing software enabled bikes. Yeah, there's a lot there. That's good reporting, Julia. Um, I, I would say, I mean, I think it's cool that, you know, I think that clearly there's going to there's going to be a lot of stories about this idea of like oh wow we have to be very careful with buying these software enabled devices like what happens when they fail that's always been a, the big argument and now it's kind of coming true clearly there does seem to be ways around that and solutions though so that that's great that that like an app like that is out there um, the one other thing I'll say sorry just to go back to like the like in you kind of spurred it talking about when VanMoof came out and they were the iPhone at the the bike I think one thing that is like very clear now is in in, in like some, the same thing happens in you know, I, I kind of harken back to like my media theory days, right? Like so much of what the people thought like would come after the, you know, so many people thought like the internet would be like TV, but like better, like, oh, we just kind of like build a better TV inside the internet. And then, but the internet's just like completely different than than TV, right? Like it's an entirely different medium. And I think the Van Moof is a little bit too literal what I think people thought the next thing would be. Oh, this beautiful e-bike but it's still very much a, a bike and it's felt where like what what do we see actually wins like it's these fat tires it's these taco style looking yeah. vehicles it's it's something very very different and i know we've talked about this on our program julia like um I, I, in many ways like a, a bike that's just looks like a bike but it's smart and electric doesn't 
I don't think is what the consumers want. And that's the other thing, like I'll say about Vemoof and is Vemoof always punched way above their weight. They got tons of press. And I think the tech variety loved them and wealthy people love them. Um, But when you look at their sales numbers, they are a fraction of the size of some of the American companies that we've had on and of course, some of the other European companies too. So I, I, I knew I didn't want to talk too much about like, you know, why they failed technically, but I, I do think there's just this idea that like, right. I think they missed the form factor. Uh, I think the form factor is bigger tires. I think the form factor is different riding styles. I don't think the form factor is like sexy looking bike that's, that's electric. And I don't think that's talk, been talked about enough either. And I just wanted to, I wanted to bring that up. Um, yeah. You know, no. I, think, I think Cowboy suffers from this too, a little bit. Like, you know, I don't think that's what's winning. So um, yeah, I just, that's important to point out. Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting point, James. Um, and something also that speaks to what I've been trying to hammer home on each and every one of these episodes, but also when we do our micromobility conferences, which is that the beauty of micromobility is its diversity. Like you don't have a unified form factor right now. And what that enables is broader customer attraction. I mean, yes. you know, for me, it's like it is kind of nice to have a cowboy or whatever and you can bring it up and downstairs. Um, but if you're talking about trying to transport anything, like those bikes don't actually work. Um, and if we talk about who's really riding acoustic bikes around the world, it is mostly men and of a certain age. Um, and so in changing up the form factor of micromobility, you change up who's able to ride and who it's designed for riding. Um, James, yeah, on this, I, I, I want to... one other point on that, Julia? Because I think you... you yeah, sure. It. There's actually, there's this new study out of the Netherlands that I'll, I'll share. I didn't even get a chance to share it with you. But basically the conclusion from the study, study was that um, bicycle users were actually more reluctant to t- adopt e-b- e-bikes than car users in the Netherlands. And so actually the mode shift was in the, like the, the argument of the article is where you should be spending your time is actually on car users, not bike users. And I think this goes to your point on diversity and also to the point on like the form factor. Like maybe the problem is we were trying to impress bike users with a sleeker e-bike when what we're actually trying to do is get people it seems like people are raising their hand and they're more desirable they want to actually get out of cars and they want to ride something different and maybe that's not what it that's that's not like a, a sleeker looking you know um trek bike would be um and so i think that's the other thing to keep in mind and that's so important and of course this only becomes so much more evident as you know interest rates are soaring the in, you know basically in the, the u.s is a new article out this week that uh, buying a car, your, your your car loan is basically twice the price it was two years ago. Um, so, you know, the car is effectively 2x more because 90% of all new cars are financed, right? Um, and so there's going to be mode shifts that you're coming because that's just, that's ridiculous, those prices. Um, and I think the people that are thinking about how do I attract someone that's a car owner versus how do I attract the cyclist is, is potentially a really good help. Yeah, yeah. That's a good bridge to our next story, James, which is about a company that fits more of this fat tire description uh, that's U.S.-based and that also seems to be going after the car driver market as opposed to the bike rider or only the bike rider market, um, and that is Rad Power. So Rad Power um, has had several bouts of layoffs, some lawsuits related to the safety of its e-bikes, um, and it's announced that it'll be pulling out of the European market by 2024, instead focusing entirely on North America. Um, and I thought this was a really interesting story because it shows, you know, at least uh, one company. So just to put in perspective, Van Moof raised $200 million. Rad Power is valued at over a billion dollars. Um, so one company that's just decided we got to double down. We got to make sure that we're doing high quality and then we're going to focus on just the target market of North America. Um, so, uh, you know, I think um, 
this is also interesting just from a supply chain perspective and a manufacturing perspective. I uh, have to imagine that Rad Power um, wants to be able to, you know, control more aspects of its D2C, its direct to consumer um, um, uh, like channel, um, especially because uh, even myself, I had the experience of getting a Rad Runner 3 Plus and trying to figure out how do I put this together and here are all the different accessories. And in some ways, you know, that's really rewarding for other pe- for people. And then in some ways, it's just really challenging. So I think d- doubling down um, and thinking about the North American uh, market is actually a good move for them. I want to say one thing, though, before, James, you respond, which is um, in this same article, uh, there are um, sort of like uh, there's like a rumor because it's not confirmed with data yet uh, that electric might have overcome Rad Power's market share in the U.S. Um, so Rad Power still has you know control over the accessories, the customer repair centers. Those are the things that differentiate it. Um, but electric is like pretty quickly creeping up on Rad Power's market share and might even have overtaken it. So I'm curious, James, you know what you think of both the, the uh, changing of markets and then also on uh, how that affects its. Um, it's competition with electric. Yeah, so I think you're, you know, you brought up a lot of good points there. One is um, what we're seeing, you know, some, I know Vanboof used to kind of have the title of like the most well-funded e-bike company, right? Um, and we, you know, you can kind of lay out the players that we know have taken venture capital funding. Um, and that's, the big ones are Vanboof, um, Electric, Aventon, and Cowboy, a couple others. These are new age companies that are, I think took, um, Rightfully so, I think they did the right thing. They took money when it was available to them during the last sort of venture capital boom. It's pretty clear that those venture capitalists are no longer supporting these companies. Um, so what that means, like, it's not like they walk away from them, but the message they send is like, there's no more money coming, right? It's, it'd be like if you're if you're in a war and you're you know you're with your troops and the generals call in and they're basically like, you're it, right? There's no one else coming behind you. There's no air coming. So do what you can, survive as long as you can with what you have. And you're gonna have to win with 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 the team that you got, and so I think that's what's happening. And clearly, Vanmoof maybe can't make it. Others probably won't make it. Rad is a massive business, right? With a, you know a huge brand I, in Europe. I saw a ton of Rad vehicles all over the place. But I think what they're realizing is we have to hunker down. So they went through the multiple layoffs, and now they're even abandoning what I assume is a very good growth market for them in Europe. Um, but you do this when you don't see future lines of capital coming in when the grow grow at all costs model goes away. Um, and the only other thing I would say, other than I think you bring up a really good point on electric, and that's just astounding that electric could grow that quickly and actually surpass Rad as a, you know, as a four-year-old company. Um, but the other thing I would say is potentially a rumor I heard is there's more regulation coming in Europe, um, making it harder and harder for American companies uh, to actually compete uh, there. Um, and, and so that's the other rumor I've heard. It's not, not substantiated beyond that, but that was another reason I heard like, uh, in terms of how the, these e-bikes are, are becoming more regulated. So they wanted to potentially pull out for that reason too. Don't know how to be true, Interesting. but you that. Yeah. Well, hopefully with some of that regulation also comes more support for the European entrepreneurs. Cause it sounds like it's, it's desperately needed, uh, especially for some of the e-bike companies that we're seeing out of, out of Europe. Um, so James, let me do one last news story and then we'll uh, turn it over to you to, to talk about launches, but. Um, just as we're seeing this, um, you know, sad news uh, week or down news week uh, in terms of uh, privately owned micromobility, we're seeing a comeback in share. Um, 
Swing, which is a, a company operating over 100,000 vehicles in South Korea, and they were at Micromobility Europe, uh, is aiming for sales of $100 million this year. They have a super interesting business model. So they have about half of that fleet that's operated by their own employees. And then the other half is actually franchised out. Um, and the franchisees own franchisees, franchised, the franchise, the franchisees. We'll go with the franchisees for right now. Um, they <laughs> they have to uh, do the operations or they, they own the vehicles themselves and also do the operations. So really, really interesting. I think the other thing that's interesting about Swain is they go for a demographic that's in their 20s and 30s, not near public transit. There's long commute times and they still charge them pretty high prices because they know they have a captive market. Um, and then one other thing, um, James, that I thought was super interesting about this particular story and and how Swing is doing is that um, they've said that uh, until the end of 2022, all of their operations were human powered and they have not made the same promise for 2023. So what that tells me is that they're going all in on AI um, and uh, AI to do things like, um, you know, predict um, uh, both when uh, repair and maintenance would be needed, but also for task recommendations in terms of, uh, oper- you know, operating the operators, figuring out how humans should actually go out in the field uh, and, and do some of these uh, rebalancing and, um, and, and fixing and, and charging. Yeah, so I, I met Jason, the, the CEO founder there. He was at one of our dinners in, in, in Amsterdam. Um, so one thing he said that was, well, he's a very funny person in general. You should have him on the show sometimes. He's, he's super We fun. should. Yeah, he's great. Um, one thing I thought that was so interesting, he said, that, you know, the biggest challenge we have in South Korea is so many of the Koreans, um, if you ride scooters and bikes, you're poor. Uh, you're perceived as poor. And he said that's a huge problem for him is overcoming the idea that these are these are not you know these are these are prestigious vehicles or these are vehicles that like you should be proud of um and um you know i thought oh that's so interesting right i clearly i think that issue does persist in even in the us and maybe in europe but not to that level so that, that was oh look at he's so they're having great success which is awesome but it was really cool to hear you know that being a real challenge for his business and you know he's been balling ways to of course overcome that and change that that culture um but yeah, did you yeah. have you seen that, Julia, in your public work? Or um, I just don't think about it like that in, in here in the U.S. Yeah, maybe yeah. some people do. Yeah, I mean, definitely to a certain extent, and depends on you know where in the city and which cities uh, and things like that. Um, I would say though, one of the things that's interesting about swing is that when you set a high price, then it actually sometimes changes your perception of you know what kind of quality product you're going to get. And that's more of like a economic social behavior, um, um, a sort of signaling thing. But maybe that's part of the reason why they do it. They know they not only have a captive audience, but actually they're signaling that this is more of a luxury product or this is more of a, you know, a, a higher end product uh, as opposed to something um, that's only written by a you know, certain demographic in one way or the other. So um, super interesting. Uh, James, I said I would pass it over to you, but maybe one more story, um, which is that um, <laughs> if you'll allow... Um, that um, the CEO of Lime, so Wayne Ting, who I had the opportunity to do and actually the pleasure to interview last year at Micromobility America, um, is uh, reporting profitability. So it's not a ton of profit. It's like $10 million of um, EBITDA. EBITDA? I'd never know how to say that. Um, but <laughs> one of the ways that he said he was able to do it is by investing in more durable modular scooters. Um, and also 
they won tenders for deploying in cities 90% of the time compared to their competitors, which I just think is amazing. So whoever's writing uh, the tenders for them is, is doing a tremendous job. Um, but that was, for me, at least a, a good uh, news story is that sustainability is actually, you know, something that's key and core to the pathway to profitability. Yeah. Uh, w- one tip to just shout out here is like, if you're traveling in Europe this summer, let's say from the U.S., um, you know, I was in Frankfurt for a week um, at Eurobike. I took one uh, Uber and it was like a mile, maybe a, a little over a mile. It was like almost 30 euros and it took like 30 minutes. And after that, I was like, okay, this is, this can't, I have to go to so many places this week. If I'm paying $30 and it takes 30 minutes each time, like I'm totally screwed. And after that, I really focused on using Lime scooters. And I will say like as someone that doesn't ride a lot of scooters, I was blown away by the quality and the availability. And I would easily say I saved like three to $400 and a lot of time using those scooters across like, you know, I was, you're able to buy in bundles of minutes. And I must have bought um, like a little over two hours of a vehicle time. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's so fun and such a better way to see the city and save money and save time. So like I, I, a huge tip for anyone going to any major, you know, European city, try to just download the apps and use the vehicles. And again, I, w- I will say the Lime scooters are way better than they used to be. So shout out to them. I'm not so sure on the profitability. There's a lot of drama about how profitable they really are. And if they're just doing fuzzy accounting, maybe we could talk to Wayne about that. Um, but irregardless, they're around. And, and as you're saying here, Julia, it seems like some of these companies are really doing better. And from my personal experience in Europe, I can, I can see why their business is getting better because that was a way better way to get around um, than taking Ubers. Okay. So are you done? Okay. I so think I'm I, done. I've like taken Dallas? like four. Yeah, no, no. I was like, I'm taking like four additional stories that I was supposed to do. So let's, let's turn it over to you, James. Let's talk about okay. launch it. Yeah. So like what, before I go to launches, I want to cover really quickly um, some what is basically becoming a culture war here in California, um, which is around uh, autonomous cars and some of the voting going down um, at the legislation level for allowing for autonomous cars to operate in certain cities. Um, the the cultural hot point is not surprisingly San Francisco as in the area that we reported on before. And the most recent um, information coming out, uh, actually Gary Tan, who's a, the president of Y Combinator, um, a former entrepreneur, did a video uh, showcasing what appears to be corruption in the SF um, MTA team leadership and group around falsifying data on self-driving cars and incidents with self-driving cars. Um, and this data, this is not being, this is being reported uh, originally by Reuters and Anna Tong and then by Gary. But the note actually came from the CPUC, which is the California Public Utility Commission, um, calling out the SFMTA as falsifying data to the state. Uh, they falsified the number of incidents that the autonomous cars were in. Um, there was four incidents. Three of those incidents, actually another car hit the autonomous car. In a fourth incident, there was actually no uh, collision. And then another um, policymaker in San Francisco was being accused of saying there was 16 incidents um, around a certain something. And um, this is, again, reported by Reuters. Um, and those uh, were reported to be false as well. Um, and so there is, like, this is very bad when people are lying about data, especially something as serious as, as collision data. Um, um, you know, we're talking about potentially like people's lives here. Um, and so 
it's really amazing that we're at this cultural hot point with safety and with technology. And it appears people are going out of their way to potentially, you know, public officials, which again, this could be calls for impeachment or resigning when you lie about things, um, are are actually being accused by other officials in the government of, of lying about this data. So the long and short of this, we could share the video, is this is going to come to a head here uh, in the next month or so around whether or not California is going to continue to allow autonomous vehicles in cities like San Francisco. Um, but I, you know, where I stand on this is I, I absolutely believe we need to get safer and I absolutely believe that technology will help us get us there. And I'm very concerned about politicians potentially lying about data uh, and creating and falsifying documents. Um, and so I want to, I, I really want to stay on top of this and understand um, where this goes. And so I'll, I'll st stop there, Julia. Clearly you have been involved in this stuff a lot in your career. Um, and yeah, I want your opinion. Yeah. I mean, James, this is one of those topics where we're just definitely not going to agree. And we're definitely not going to agree across many different dimensions of this. I mean, the legacy of autonomous vehicle policy and the existing autonomous vehicle policy across the U.S. is an absolute mess. The federal government never took um, the leadership it needed to in terms of regulating autonomous vehicles, making sure the technology itself is safe um, in terms of everything from the vehicle design to how that software actually works and then how it works on roads. Um, and so, um, you know, autonomous vehicles kind of came into their heyday during the Trump administration when Secretary Chow was the head of USDOT. And instead of doing anything regulatory or regulations wise, uh, she, I think, was like adopted like a 12 point framework for looking at autonomous vehicles, which is essentially just a crock of shit. So um, we've had very little leadership at the federal level in terms of autonomous vehicles, which means that it's come down to states or localities to do something about it. In California, it was a... Um, a death match between states and cities in terms of who would regulate what. The state ended up winning, then it ended up going into a really weird agency in the California Public Utilities Commission, which actually works on water and works on electricity. It doesn't really work on transportation, so uh, arguably doesn't really know what it's doing. And so the types of data that the CPUC collects are minimal, they're aggregated, they're not real time, um, and they're not really tied to the uh, activity of the autonomous vehicles. And this is largely because autonomous vehicle Companies had a lot of money and they had a lot of lobbyists. And so they were able to, um, you know, um, get uh, the right regulations, the right level in order to avoid scrutiny. So I'm going to be honest, I'm on the side of the local regulators here. You know, I can't imagine um, that they were really falsifying data. Like I can only imagine that they're not really getting any data. I mean, local uh, municipalities don't get any data. Counties don't get any data directly from these autonomous vehicle companies. They get it from the CPUC in like a spreadsheet format. So the idea that they would actually falsify it to me seems like kind of nuts and also just an easy way for tech folks to um, get out of a stickier situation around just an honest conversation on um, the own performance of their autonomous vehicles. Now, where I do agree with you is I, I do think there's a role for autonomous vehicles in the future. Um, I think where I, you know, again, don't agree with you is that more cars on the road does not make more safety. Um, and so what, you know, Jeff Tomlin and others, I'm sure, are trying to do also is to make sure that if we do have autonomous vehicles, it's not like a one-to-one. -one. We're not just seeing the same single occupancy vehicle um, uh, usage that we are right now, that there is actually some shared component of it, um, and that those autonomous vehicles are really respectful of pedestrians and cyclists. So again, James, this is one where we could go all day, um, just in terms of um, where, uh, like breaking down these different points, but I, I just can't agree with you. I don't, I don't think um, that there's necessarily like a lot of lies going about uh, uh, driverless cars in San Francisco. 
I also don't agree with the folks who are like, I saw there was a video of like somebody putting a traffic cone over the cameras of a ton of, of a Waymo, maybe it was Waymo or Cruise vehicle rather, just to try to, you know, mess it up. I don't think that's right either. Um, but there's got to be, you know, some better way of doing this um, right now than, you know, either putting uh, traffic cones on autonomous vehicle cameras or not sharing any data whatsoever uh, with municipalities so they don't really have control over the the roads that they're responsible for according to their citizens. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, like, so we gotta, there's a lot of things to break down. One, of course, is this idea of, like, you know, the CPUSC has, has alleged that this data is, is is incorrect and needs to be fixed. And, you know, we can, we can, well, we can table whether or not they, they're, it's considered lying and, you know, potentially a, a real offense. Um, although again, very serious to be messing around with incident data. I would hate to think that that actually happened. Um, but again, this is not me accusing them. This is CPUSC and, and Reuters reporting on it um, as being real. Um, I don't, I would, okay, so the, there is a, seems to be a larger group of people that are now saying like, we can't actually do this because we need to figure out how to replace, or, you know, this is uh, replacing an autonomous car with a driver car is not a good enough solution. I've heard this a lot. Um, at the very top, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Jennifer Hamadi, sort of tries to talk about this. She uses this very weird strawman. It's almost like the the guns don't kill people strawman, um, but for the, whatever her radical position is, um, which is like, uh, people don't kill people don't kill um, for, you know 43,000 Americans don't die because of human error they die because of road design all these other things sure um, but we can agree that like drug driving we can agree that people are distracted we can agree that people are driving bigger vehicles now that maybe are harder to control and or just taking more space and you can grace one easier um, and again what we've seen in to go back to the San Francisco story is like, for instance, the San Francisco Fire Department, which was very close with Waymo and with Cruz, and there's a lot of um, publicly available information that shows that has now gone and deleted all those, a, a lot of what they've done on Twitter in terms of talk, espousing the idea that these are safer vehicles and such. And again, it seems like we're coming into like a union argument and an argument over like potentially, you know, if you follow the money on this, like Jennifer Hamandy is part of the Teamsters unions and she's paid by these people. Um, like, are you... Are you all concerned that it's not, are you all concerned that we're mixing a lot of messages here and we're actually, this is actually about jobs um, over lives and not about anything to do with like street design or, you know, are we really solving the real problem? Which again, I I still think is a pretty stupid argument when we lose 43,000 people. Um, But yeah, I'm just curious what you think about there. Like, do you think these people are potentially incentivizing correctly in terms of their, their associations with unions? Which of course have drivers and they're worried about their drivers losing their jobs because these vehicles can be driverless yeah um it's a great question so i think you have to separate out the people i mean from a federal government government perspective perspective absolutely i mean the labor unions have an incredible amount of power in dc and they wield it wisely um both um especially for things like the trucking sector and for autonomous trucking in particular that's where you see it show up the most um at a local level it's really about taxis and about um uh, taxi drivers and taxi cab associations that are shockingly powerful given how few taxis you now see in American cities, except for New York. Um, and also, you know, um, the relative power that you would think they would have um, to other organizations. So when you're talking about people and when you're talking about unions, like those are, those are the things that are coming up. 
Um, but I would say in terms of, you know, this in particular, um, in San Francisco, I mean, we're talking about mostly passenger vehicles, right? And if we're talking about, you know, vehicles for hire, we're also talking mostly about cars that are currently driven by Uber and Lyft. And they, those are not employees. Like those are, you know, contractors and they're not given health benefits or anything. So they're definitely, uh, I think, not advocating against autonomous vehicles. In fact, you know, I'm not sure that many of those companies, it's just like a, and they're advocating for more autonomous vehicles because they know their platforms are just going to be able to take those over and then not have the labor costs. Um, so I think passenger vehicles, honestly, I don't, I don't see you having a lot of labor, like labor dynamics. And I don't think that that has anything to do really with um, the issues around driverless cars. When it comes to trucking, though, it's a whole nother conversation um, and absolutely has some impact on whether or not we're going to see driverless trucks uh, and, and when. Yeah. Okay. So I, um, I guess to, to, to put it in this, what I would say is I, I think there's a lot of corruption around the, around autonomous vehicles. And I don't think it's on the private companies. I think it's in the government. Um, and I think like Reuters reporting that people are falsifying data is a very serious allegation of corruption. Um, and I think we got to, my opinion is we have to dig way in deeper here. Um, and really figure this out. And I think we should all agree that there's no place for corruption when it comes to like trading, trading lives for jobs or anything like that. That's, that's insane. And, you know, we've documented San Francisco in the past episodes has not done a great job. And Tumlin's organization has not done a good job on protecting people on the streets um, over the last couple of years. So, um, yeah. Um, okay. So on the launches, uh, last month we had on uh, Chris Ray from Apollo Scooters. They've now launched their Apollo Pro on Indiegogo, like he mentioned, they were going to do. And like it is getting the ravest of reviews um, from Electric, from a bunch of folks. And like basically they're saying it's the best scooter ever. Like not necessarily the fastest and like the best performance, but like it just blends the comfort, the ride, the aesthetics. Like people are really loving this this vehicle. So congrats to Apollo and to Chris. Like it's just so cool that we talked about it. Now it's out and people like are clearly loving it. So check out the uh, that Apollo scooter. Uh, next up, BMW has released what they're calling the E-Parkour. So does that make sense to you? E-Parkour? Yeah. It does. E-Parkour. Okay, yeah. E-Parkour. Yeah, yeah. Like, um, like, what do you say that? What do you say parkour? Like, how do you... I don't, when you I don't parkour. Find it. When you parkour. It's like a French thing. Yeah when, yeah, when you parkour. You know what parkour, I guess. No? Well, it's like it's like moving around in like cool ways. Like yeah, in, yeah. In yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, in an urban environment. Yeah. It's a French do you thing. park? Do you park parkour? I don't parkour. <laughs> I have not parkour. You have not parkour. Okay. Um, no. <laughs> neither of us have. Good. I was I was worried that I was the only one that hasn't parkour. Um, but uh, so what do you? What do you think? Okay, BMW has released an e parkour. What do you think? I mean, it just sounds really pretentious, but okay. it also sounds like BMW's BMW's version of like, um, oh yeah, we like want to be hip. So like, let's do something that was actually like popular fifteen years ago. Uh, but I, in terms of like what it looks like, I have absolutely no idea. What is it? Yeah. What does this so look like? So they're saying it's neither an e-motorbike or an e-moped. It's something in between. Um, it's got 55 miles of range and goes almost 60 miles per hour. So it's like this. You know, it's not a motorcycle. It's not a moped, I guess. It's not an e-bike. Um, but it looks like it looks like a motorcycle to me that kind of has more moped-like speeds. So that's the thing. And you e-parkour with it. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Let us know if you get one. Um, <laughs> And then uh, another fun one is the little car company. And these uh, these folks are known for making kind of fun, small vehicles, has announced the, well, let me ask you, Julie, did you have any RC cars growing up as a kid? No. No? 
Yes, you must have. <laughs> no. um, okay, so they have created um, basically the, the wild one from the 1980s, which was a very, so RC stands for remote control. So um, growing up in the 80s, you most likely had a remote control car. Julia didn't, but um, we'll figure that out later. Uh, and they've made a life-size RC car, which um, is this really fun electric dune buggy. It's like 500 kilograms or 1,100 pounds. Um, and it can really whip around and it looks pretty fun. So I think this is like kind of going after the midlife crisis guys that grew up with RC cars in the 80s and now want to drive a full-size version of one. Um, and it's electric and um, it's cool. So maybe, you know, I'm in that demographic. I'll probably buy one. And then finally, uh, we have Tenways has come out with the Anu T. Tenways has got a lot of amazing vehicles, a lot of new launches. They'll be at Microbility America with some of their new vehicles. Um, so they just announced the Ivo T, which is super sexy. It's a fun step through. Um, and yeah, a lot of the 10 ways are getting really good reviews. So it's just nice to nice to see them continue to ship new bikes. Any thoughts on any of those, those uh, vehicles, Julia? I know I went uh, pretty fast there. I mean, I'm just still laughing at this baby, ba- uh, the baby Bugatti, Bugatti rather, or the Bugatti baby. Um, I think that that just is amazing. And also this comment about uh, folks having midlife crises or maybe guys having midlife crises and getting <laughs> some of these cars. I cannot wait to see you, James, like leading a bunch of <laughs> guys. <laughs> well, not only having a midlife crisis. Let me, let me take that back. Um, <laughs> I can't wait to see uh, the the, the uh, baby Bugattis in, in Encinitas just rolling rolling down the the pathway there. I mean, absolutely. Julia will be a part of it. Um, okay, Julia, we have our guest now, which is Marcus Lee, the, the CEO and founder of Eli Electric Vehicles. Uh, let me bring Marcus up. Marcus is creating quite a vehicle. It's not quite the um, baby Bugatti or the remote control uh, uh, wild one, but it's still a very cool car. Um, so yeah, welcome, Marcus. How you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm good. How are you guys? Good. Great. Doing great. Um, yeah, I guess my first question, Marcus, will bat and forth between Julia and I, but um, my first question is, where in the world are you? I'm in Beijing right now. Uh, so we have office here for production, and um, our vehicles are built through our partner's factory in southern China. Great, great. Um, so uh, Marcus, I guess backstory for the audience, uh, we got to know you. Um, through being at Micromobility America actually last year um, and showing off uh, the the Eli Zero, um, which is just amazing. And now, as far as I understand, the Eli Zero is is in production and you're shipping to Europe. Is that right? Yeah. It's, uh, we already started pilot sales in Europe uh, and we're selling in Italy and French Polynesia. And this year we're expanding to some major new markets like Spain and Portugal. And in fact, we're in a in, in a production crunch. We're scaling up our production and expanding our footprint. Great. So we'll we'll show some, of course, the videos of your vehicles and everything, Marcus. But um, just to start there, like what what is the vision for the vehicle, and you know who who's the audience? Who who do you want to buy? Uh, you know, one of these one of these first off the line Eli Zeros. Yeah. Uh, so I know James, you get to sit in the car and drive it a little bit uh, at micro mobility. Um, San Francisco last year. And um, so what we found is that our early adopters are people who prioritize these kind of convenience and trying to get A to B effortless, and they don't really necessarily want a car type experience, but want the same kind of shelter and protection from weather 
and being able to get to places with a lot of baggage uh, comparing with driving, uh, you know, there's a large gap between a car and a bike. So that's that's where we want to fit it. Great. And um, in terms of the people that are buying it right now, like what do you, are they are they replacing car trips with it? And because as far as I know, Marcus, it, it, the top speed is 25 miles per hour. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. In the okay. U.S. Uh, and in in the Europe in Europe, it's 45 miles per hour. Okay. Um, and so, in terms of like, uh, you know, where people are putting it in their portfolio, like, what what type of consumers are buying this today? They're replacing car trips completely. Some car trips, some like e-bike or bike trips, or what are you seeing so far from the data? Yeah. So a lot of people are are um are are replacing um their car trips with these kind of micro EV trips. And we have people, we also have customers who's buying this as their only car. They, they need a car, but they never really want a, a full-size car. So it is definitely replacing a lot of car, uh, car trips. And we also have young people, uh, someone as young as 14-year-old, um, for example, uh, using it as their first car, buying it as first car, because in Europe, they have a policy that allows this vehicle to be driven without needing a full full driver's license. I didn't know that. Uh, Julia, did you know that? That you can do that? Did not know that. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a little, it's a little scary, but you know, it's also cool. Works for yeah, Marcus we, we, and the company. We, yeah. Yeah. So they, they can drive. Yeah. The idea is that if they can drive a bike and this is much safer for them and in the same kind of speed category. And also like for the elderly, like someone is... We have a, a 94 year old in Austria who's driving this vehicle, um, one of our earliest customers. Also, like having the advantage of not having an car. Right. Interesting. Right. Is the 94 year old Austrian your uh, sort of your mascot for the company? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I talk about the 14 year old and 94 year old to show how wide variety of customers that covers. That's so interesting. And Marcus, maybe James, if I can butt in here with a couple of questions. Um, some of the countries that you were mentioning that you're expanding into in Europe, so Spain, Portugal, Italy, and then French Polynesia. I, I'm just curious, what what is it about those company or countries rather that make sense for you and for you know the way you're describing your target demographic? Yeah, so you can well, first of all, they're both beautiful places and that's one common thing. <laughs> Are you only choosing the places that you want to travel to, Marcus? Is this it? (laughs) (laughs) No, no, really. But it's it's like the cities that are livable, that are beautiful, and they are more. uh, They have smaller streets, and they have narrower uh, streets that's more walkable, and uh, they don't really have uh, lots of highways dividing their cities, and they're more usually more scenic, more uh, have high, you know, more livable. So these places um, do adapt our vehicles better. So um, I think our markets share that kind of um, quality of being uh, very friendly towards alternative modes of transportation. That's so interesting. That wouldn't have occurred to me as the primary reason that you're going into those markets, but that's that's really cool. So um, Marcus, are you worried about delivering your vehicles to these places? I mean, the way that you're mentioning them too, they don't seem like easy places to get to. Uh, yeah, we have good local partners. Uh, and, you know, we're just, again, we're a very early, we're a baby stage in the startup uh, 
our startup journey. We're still a seed stage startup. Um, so we are delivering, we are building, but um, we're also trying to scale up um, and we have limited capacity. So we're trying to pick our play, uh, our locations very strategically. And uh, these are the market that's very, um, that's very friendly towards uh, smaller vehicles. Yeah, and you mentioned that you're doing like a pilot. So does that mean a certain number of vehicles that you're trying to sell or, or what does that mean to you? Um, yeah, we're trying to, uh, because Europe is such a large and diverse place. So we're trying to learn more about our product and in, uh, how, how different uh, demographics and different regions reacts to it. And then um, scale our production and scale our, our, our company and scale our, comp- our product, improve the product to uh, better serve the market. Yeah, really interesting. So Marcus, in addition to Europe, are you starting to plot out other parts of the world that are scenic and uh, have good density and, and et cetera that you're going you're gonna to pilot next? Well, it's interesting because the vehicle is originally designed for the U.S. market and then we pivoted towards a European launch. Uh, we do see a huge demand in the U.S. Uh, the thing is, it's easy to, to imagine it on European, narrow European streets, but uh, what uh, a lot of Americans don't probably haven't realized is that they actually, a lot of neighborhoods and communities, they also can um, benefit from having micro EVs replacing a lot of the car trips. So that's also uh, something we're planning. Yeah, that's so interesting. James and I have been talking about that a lot because um, down near where he lives um, in Southern California, there's a lot of these like little cities, ocean cities that um, have started to have a bunch of electric golf cart looking things, but they've almost like supersized them. So they're no longer these like small electric golf carts. They're like the Hummer version of an electric golf cart which I find fascinating. So I could see how your product would have a fit down there, um, but also start, I'm starting to see that those um, smaller vehicles are becoming larger, even as they're becoming electric. Yeah, uh, James told me that he sees a lot of these kind of recreational vehicles, golf carts around his neighborhood. Um, so we're trying to uh, to uh, make a statement with our product to say that it's not this kind of smaller EV category is not just a recreational category. It can't be taken seriously as an alternative mode of transportation uh, and can actually replace a lot of car trips and benefits communities. Uh, Marcus, we've been talking, uh, sorry, we've been talking a lot about on this episode, actually, um, you know, a lot of companies in the space sort of struggling that have raised a lot of capital and you know are now starting to pull back we mentioned Vamoof and rad earlier today um you you clearly have um you know been able to raise your seed round um you've been able to get some traction in in europe um i know in the past just listening to some of your interviews you had a lot of challenges around of course inflation and the the cost of componentry as well as supply chain issues i guess two-part question one part is do you see um, you not expanding as quickly because of the funding environment? And two, are there still inflation and supply chain issues or have those been resolved? Yeah, I mean, we're trying to scale up. Yeah, we're definitely trying to scale up more sustainably. And uh, and again, we're a very early stage company and we're self-funded as well as we, we've done multiple rounds of equity crowdfunding to uh, to better understand, you know, our supporters and get them on board as well. 
but we are um, at early stage of scaling that we've sold uh, a bunch of vehicles um, so far. Uh, but we feel like this is a pretty large market and has a lot of room to grow. So we're trying to balance supply chain, balance our own growth and the growth of the market. Great. And then I guess on that question, how how long before you think we're going to be able to buy, you know, purchase these in the U.S. and actually you know show up at our doorstep? So we're planning for a U.S. pilot, a very limited pilot, to test the market um, later this year. And it's go- not going to be a wide, uh, a, a full-scale availability, probably just in one or two locations and just to get the vehicles on the road. Because um, uh, right now we have these vehicles on the road in the U.S. Um, just for our internal tests, uh, trying to get market feedback and trying to see, you know, what are the locations that's um, that's perfect uh, for, for this vehicle that's more accepting. So... Um, we're planning that out and, um, but I think you will be able to see them on the road, um, in certain communities by the end of the year. Are you going to announce those? Have you announced those communities or you gonna announce that at Micromobility America or you want to announce that now? Like where are you, where are you going to be in America? Yeah, we have not. And, uh, we're still planning. Yeah. There's just so many, the thing about, um, the U S market is that, it's it's a uh, such a diverse range of options between, um, you know, the urban areas and the gated communities, and the retirement communities, and the certain places in Florida, and you know, communities in Arizona, and they're just so different, um, and they're but they 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 all share the same need for local trips. Um, but they just so different in terms of how how educated they are about this product category. Marcus uh, Lee from from Eli, thank you for joining us, and um, best of luck with with of course your your upcoming launches, and uh, look forward to hoping hopefully seeing you in October. Yeah, look forward to seeing you, you guys too. Okay, thanks, Marcus. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, Thank's see you, Marcus. Marcus. All right, Julia. That's the end of the episode. We were long today. We had a um, big episode today. I mean, you got us down on an autonomous vehicle tangent, and that was you just you thought that that was going to be like a two minute conversation because I'm pretty sure you thought I was going to agree with everything that you said, not take any issue with it, you know, ask for resignation, and it was like f that. I absolutely do not agree, James. We're not on the same page here. And then you had to bring in the baby Bugatti. I mean, James, really- I really blame you for the length of this episode. I would agree. It's my fault. Um, I mean, the only thing I can stand by is I'm right. I have truth on my side, so that's all that matters. And, uh, sometimes the truth thinks time, folks. So, um, you know. okay, Julia, well, you have yourself a wonderful weekend. And um, yeah, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Right, right on. on.